Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast for resources for the future. Well, except for this week, when we're actually mixing it up a bit. I'm your introductory host, Kristen Hayes, and today I have the pleasure of introducing not just an individual guest or two, but an entirely new podcast series for our listeners to consider. Just a few weeks ago, one of our closest partner organizations in Europe, the Euro-Mediterranean Center on Climate Change, or CMCC, launched its own podcast series called Foresight Deep into the Future Planet. Today, we're pleased to share the first episode in that series with you here on Resources Radio. In the spirit of solidarity with our fellow scholars, and in service of our mission to introduce listeners to a range of perspectives on issues facing our planet. So please enjoy this special broadcast, and we'll be back with our regular Resources Radio programming next week. Thinking, wow, this is really going to happen, and this is going to be different. Can we begin to imagine it ahead of time? so that um, we can be prepared for it or maybe have important discussions about what we want this to look like. Am I an optimist or a pessimist? Well, I'm certainly an optimist in this sense, which is that I believe that you know despair is unhelpful and cynicism, cynicism is obedience. So I believe that being optimistic about our capacity to make changes that we know we can make is a central you know, aspect of being an effective person right now. But I also don't believe that there's any way that we get a sort of classic happy ending out of this story. Where does science meet imagination? Our complex, interconnected, fast-changing world makes anticipations of the future more and more difficult. But the future is being shaped by today's ideas, solutions and decisions. The future is now. I am Elisabetta Tola, science journalist, and this is Foresight Deep into the Future Planet, a podcast produced by the CMCC Euro-Mediterranean Center on Climate Change and FACTA. Today, we jump straight into the future. How do we look ahead in time and how do we try and envisage which are the routes we should take and which are the potential outcomes that will result from our current choices, actions, evaluations? It is not a matter of applying divination abilities. We're not moving in the realm of magic. It is more a case of using science, data, models and scenarios to try and anticipate what the future might be and which of the possible futures in front of us is the most desirable one and the one we wish to aim at. The real challenge today is the scale of the problem and the scale of the measures and solutions we have to adopt. There's always change in our civilization. There's always, you know, uh, political change and cultural change and technological change. But what's happening right now is a, is a scale of change around the entire earth that makes the world we live in today different than the world that we lived in not that long ago. 
This is Alex Steffen. Based in California, he has been an environmental journalist for many years. But his current job is one that is becoming more and more strategic, and yet is not well known and recognized. He is a futurist. He helps institutions and companies anticipate the planetary future and the new insights and capacities they'll need to thrive during the transformations ahead. But most of all, Alex Steffen imagines our future world and tells stories about it. All of our expectations for how change happens were formed in that older world. But we live in this new world, which is just full of discontinuity, right? It's full of places where, uh, you know, where things used to be this way and now they're suddenly that way and they're becoming even more that way. And so when we face that kind of discontinuity, we have to start by going, okay, what is no longer true? What can we no longer assume is the way it was? And the more we ask that question, the more of the world it pertains to, right? The more we ask the question of what is no longer the way it was, the more clearly the answer becomes everything. So my work is about looking at natural systems and human systems and how each is changing and how they are changing one another over time. And of course, uh, a lot of change has already happened, a lot more change than we're used to thinking about, um, and much more is on the way. And so part of the task of understanding what we have to do now to make sensible, you know, smart, fair decisions, part of that task is thinking ahead about what's about to happen and really trying to understand our lives today in the context of that magnitude of change. Thinking ahead about what's about to happen. Does it mean anticipating the future? Not really. It must be much more complicated than that, after all. While discussing with us, Alex explains that his work has a lot to do with collecting evidences and data to update and improve our understanding of the complexity and our ability to decipher it. It is a very methodological approach that keeps the distance from the temptation to come up with one or another prediction of a future outcome. In futurism circles, as in science circles, we generally talk about probabilities right? Rather than predictions. We generally talk about what is a plausible outcome here? What does the evidence say? Rather than this is the way it will be. I think it is even more wise to avoid prediction right now because our sense of the probabilities of outcomes are all, you know, in upheaval. Um, part of the nature of so many systems changing so much at the same time is that all of our models for how we understand change in the world are outdated. And our ability to say this will happen at this time has never been, you know, at least in the scientific era, it's never been so low. And so what we have to do in a sense is look at the entire landscape around us and not try and predict what's happening, but try and understand what the range of the possible is and try and formulate a set of, you know, approaches or strategies or responses to that range of possible outcomes that allow us to be flexible as we move forward, right? That allow us to, to be attuned to the changes we can't yet see. I call this hedging the landscape, but 
you know, that's just my jargon term for it. According to Alex Stephan, we have to hedge against not just uncertainty, but also against the very strong possibility that we don't see yet what's happening. This is not the way that we have generally been trained to think. Now I'm spending time relearning what I thought I knew. This is how Alex Stephan described his reasons that led him to kick off his own project of climate futurism, a piece of work called The Snap Forward. What I have found is the most vital thing to relearn is the sense of tempo. We have all grown up in a world where change has felt like it's going fast, but was still understandable, was still manageable. And we have a certain idea of how fast things can change, how rapidly they can move from one state to another. That's completely out of date. And especially for somebody who, you know, is an expert, um, who, who has made my living through the sale of professional acumen, right? It's very hard to acknowledge that something as basic as my understanding of the tempo of change is out of date and needs to be relearned, rethought. But that's the state we're all in, is we find ourselves facing tempos of change that are unprecedented in the history of civilization. So I came to doing the work that I'm doing now, the Snap Forward, which is a work of climate journalism, but also climate futurism. I came to doing this work from the realization that I had that I myself, despite having spent, you know, 25 years working in the field, was not really ready, you know, I'm not really ready for what is happening around us. And the more that I thought about that, about how different the world is than the world we still discuss in our public debates and in our culture, the more I thought about that difference, the more uh, clear it became to me that I wasn't the only one who wasn't ready. And that, in fact, uh, unreadiness for the magnitude of change we face is the most defining aspect of our civilization. We are not ready, and yet we need to be prepared to face what is happening around us. Changes due to the climate crisis are already very visible in many parts of the world. And sometimes they become suddenly real, concrete, also in areas and regions where people do not think there will be a real impact. The need to be ready is one of the many triggers of the artistic work developed by Carolina Aragon. Originally from Colombia, Carolina Aragon is an artist and educator based in the US at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, who uses public art to transform landscapes and engage communities. So I teach in the landscape architecture program, um, which in general is concerned with our experience outdoors, right? My particular niche has to do more about the role that public art and temporary installations have to do with our understanding of our landscapes, our connection to our landscapes, and the way we uh, feel, perceive, and question uh, the future as it relates to the sort of shared 
spaces and shared world. Um, so what I do is a subset of what a much greater profession is concerned, right? And if you can imagine that in an ecological system, there are trees or rocks, rocks that have been for millions of years, right? Trees that have lived for hundreds of years, landscapes that have been for decades. What I do has a very short lifespan of perhaps a couple of months, maybe a year, but it, um, it serves a particular function, just like there are animals and little plants that have short lives, but perform in a, in a particular way. If you imagine like the, how a flower blooms for a short time, yet it's very impressive or it causes a, a, a memory. My work sort of fits that category of the ephemeral, the temporary, yet that it has, uh, creates a memory, it creates almost a spectacle, a moment to see things in a different light, and uh, hopefully events that can be remembered at a later date. When it comes to landscape transformation, the climate crisis we are facing is taking center stage. Again, the scale of change and the scale of our due response is dramatically different. And Carolina Aragon knows that very well. I think as artists, or I feel my, as my, my personal experience with um, the severity of climate change has a direct impact in my work because I remember when this was not such a big deal. And then it became, it's like there was a light switch that went on. And my work has been essentially a way to process the sadness and the worry and the concern about this. To me, as an artist, I feel that I have unprecedented access to information about the impacts. And I am shocked when I have conversations with planning officials and I continuously ask, okay, so what would be helpful for me as an artist? I want to have more impact. I want to tell me, tell me what, what would be helpful to you. And uh, last year I heard, well, we just need to, uh, we just need to uh, get people uh, prepared for extreme conditions, um, extreme weather events. So we've gone from not talking about to wanting to let people sort of know what's going on to now I'm being told, we just need to prepare for the really extreme weather events or like extreme problems. And oh my goodness, that is a big, big leap. This is happening very fast. And so in my work, and to go back to your question, I think that the most efficient pieces or not efficient, more effective are, are, are pieces that have a heart, pieces that not only inform you of the severity and the reality of a problem, right? Like there is honest and there's truth or there's science behind them, right? But also ideally, and this is my hope for my work, which I have yet to do, but I need to do this better, connect me directly with something that I can do right at any scale but give me something that i can do uh, so that i can not just be devastated 
One of Carolina Aragon's most well-known and awarded works is called Future Shoreline. It is a temporary water and land-based art installation that shows the projected flooding due to sea level rise in Boston. In 2021, Future Shoreline won the CMCC Climate Change Communication Award Rebecca Balestra, the international competition promoted by the Euro-Mediterranean Center on Climate Change, to showcase and reward the best communication initiatives that spread awareness on climate change. Future Shoreline is a part of a series of artworks that I've developed mostly for the city of Boston, Massachusetts, uh, which have aimed at uh, providing a way to not just understand the physical kind of implications of what sea level rise are going to be for the city, but what sea level rise is going to be for the city, but it's also providing sort of a way to emotionally connect to this phenomena that is kind of scary and threatening to all of us. So future shoreline, as opposed to some of my previous works that only showed how much flooding was predicted in the future, um, this is the first project where um, we're also showing some of the measures that the city is considering in order to protect uh, a vulnerable area for the city, which is to create a berm, you know, which is like, you know, basically put up sort of a soil, right, to raise the land and prevent water from coming in. And, you know, it's interesting because the project did not start like that. The project started like many others, which it was oh, we have this vulnerability, that this is an area that is very likely to flood, this is how much it's going to flood. Um, And it was, you know, quite impressive for a kind of highly populated, very central location of Boston. Um, And I had the fortune of working and having conversations with the sort of government officials of the Climate Ready Boston uh, sort of uh, uh, folks in at, at the city, and they said to me, "Oh yes, it would make a lot of sense to have a project in this channel. You know, it's a body of water that is very, you know, close to downtown Boston. But it would be really nice if we can be optim- if it can be optimistic." And I remember thinking, "Well, yeah, that would be very nice." <laughs> uh, but you know, uh, you tell me. And um, after a couple conversations, it came out like well, you know, we may be building a berm to protect, to protect this piece of land. I was like, oh, well, that's something good. <laughs> and, and, and then I realized, oh, wait, this is going to be really interesting because this is one small portion of a shoreline that is going to be modified to protect the city. There's probably hundreds and thousands of miles of coastal shorelines that are going to need to be transformed. And we need to start thinking about that and we need to start understanding what these changes are going to be. So that's where even the title came, Future Shoreline, as a sort of moment of reckoning or thinking, wow, this is really going to happen and this is going to be different. Can we begin to imagine it ahead of time? so that um, we can be prepared for it or maybe have important discussions about what we want this to look like. So that's where it came from. 
the emotional side of climate change is crucial in Carolina Aragon's work. This is something she has in common with Alex Stephen, who constantly keeps into his work both the emotional and intellectual dimension of thinking about the planetary future. The planetary crisis is as much emotional as it is intellectual. The biggest barriers to our ability to understand and grapple with the changes around us are inside our own heads, right? They're in our own hearts. They, they stem from the fact that we were all raised and, you know, educated and informed by our experiences and our parents and our elders in certain attitudes about how the world works and what we can expect and what a good life is and, you know, how to be savvy in your life and how to do good. And those expectations no longer map to reality. And that is a really jarring experience when you realize that. I call it a personal discontinuity. You know, we're rolling along in our lives and suddenly we go, oh, the world is not as I thought it was. And if the world isn't as I thought it was, then my life isn't the life I thought I was leading. And that experience is profoundly alienating. Um, it's, it, it can trigger deep grief and deep anger. So in this world that we find ourselves in, how do we not live in, uh, you know, in a perpetual sort of isolation and, and remove, but how do we actually become at home in the world? How do we become native to this moment? We don't have to regard this moment as an aberration, because if it's an aberration and we can't reconcile ourselves with it, we're going to live in an aberration for the rest of our lives. And I don't think that's helpful. But I also think it, I think it limits our ability to do what we want to do in the world, to not be willing to accept and embrace the world as it actually is. So, you know, you ask, uh, how do we speak to people in an emotional way? How do we talk to their spirits? Well, that's it, right? To my mind, that's the most important thing is let go of the world that we no longer have embrace what's true now and re you know rebuild a home within that rebuild recreate find a new home a new place to be and make it a real home it's a perspective that has become and will become a reality for millions of people the current environmental and climate crisis amplifies the effects of other crises Wars and conflicts, inequalities, lack of opportunities, lack of resources. The combination of many of these factors are already triggering migrations, life-changing decisions, reorganizations of local communities. Not everywhere it will be possible to adapt. Not everywhere there will be a chance to rebuild, to be resilient, to have a future, and definitely to go back to the way things were before the current crisis. Change is already here, and it has to be a key component of any future plan. And therefore, we all have to work on the concept and on the process of shaping possible alternatives, of building a variety of potential futures for us and for any other human being. Is the human and emotional component of inhabiting a new land, which 
for many of us who are immigrants, and in a way, so many of us are immigrants right now because um, you know where you very few of us, at least here in in North America, are living in the place where our parents and grandparents lived. Most of us, you know, and and, and our rapidly changing culture are living in a, in places that are rather new. Um, that may not be the case so much in Europe, but in every, in, in other places in the world, that is very common. And so. How do we take this experience of being a new person in a, in a different place? How do you make that your home? How, what, how do we define home? How do we create home uh, as a mixture of not just the physical setting, but of the human community um, around you? It's very important as well. You know, one of the beautiful things about being a public artist is that I get to be on the street and I get to uh, sort of see the reactions from many people. And when one is in academia or, uh, or as a scientist or is working for the government, we tend to forget that there are a lot of people that are not as aware of what's going on as we are. And you can't blame the general public because most people who goes home to read a planning report? No one, right? And so it's, it's something that is very, uh, feels very distant uh, and inaccessible. And so, but these are, as we all know, these are decisions and these are very important problems that need all of our talent and all of our attention and all of our goodwill. I'm a big believer, and this is where the reason for hope, not as a way of, um sugar coating right but is more as a way of trying to foster and generate all the human goodness that we can um and and i think that that is critical because we these are the types of problems that require uh, a lot of creative thinking it requires a lot of collaboration and hopefully they will require a lot of caring for each other in order to be successful. So that's at the core of what I do and why, why, you know, why I think that even something as simple as a literal translation of how much water we're going to have and how tall this small uh, soil berm is going to need to be are important as a first step in reaching out a wide group of people. The environmental challenges, the fast urbanization of our world, and the demographic increase make it impossible to address the complex climate crisis we are living with oversimplified solutions. Let's plant more trees, let's just invest in renewable energy and so on. We have to embrace complexity and yet look for real solutions, solutions that we can design and apply. What should be the right approach? Alex Stefan thinks that we need to act, and we need to act fast. We know that almost certainly we're going to face a much, much worse ecological crisis, including a climate crisis. We are just simply not doing anything like enough, anything like fast enough, to avoid what we would have thought of even 20 years ago as a pretty bad outcome. On the other hand, we are acting. Action is happening and it is picking up speed and more action is inevitable for all sorts of reasons. And 
because of that, we're also probably not going to see the worst case scenarios, right? We're not going to see, you know, human extinction or necessarily even like the collapse of civilization. These are less likely outcomes than they might have been at one point. Within all of that, there's some really difficult challenges that we have to understand. In every scenario moving forward, we're going to face transapocalyptic realities. And that's my term for describing the reality that some places will experience really dire challenges to human existence, but many other places won't. And we tend to think in a sort of unitary vision that either humanity as a whole is doing well, or it's the end of the world. But the reality is more transapocalyptic, as I say. It's more that some places are experiencing the end of the world, and other places are doing fine. And that's probably how it's going to continue to be for the rest of the lifetime of everybody listening this to this. Every place is different. Every culture is different. Uh, there will be places that we can modify. There will be places where that is probably not the wisest thing to do, would be my guess. Um, I think... I think, you know, what I usually say on this topic is, um, which I think you're hinting at, uh, retreat, right? Uh, moving to other areas. We need to actively start thinking about it from the human side, meaning to relate it to the type of work that I do. How do we create bonds with these new places that are going to be our new homes, uh, transition, so that the emotional process is better because it's all about human emotions and i mean not all of it i'm sure there's economics and all of things but you know the, the the reason that we love certain places and we live certain places is because of we are attached our attachment to these landscapes right and so how do we create that how do we how do we channel connection to place and and that's an important question i think that we all need to start thinking about it and of course, no, there's no one solution for everything, right? For every place. Sure, there is not one solution that fits everything. Alex Stefan agrees that the more we wait, the more changes and actions will have to be swift and effective. And yet, there is not one single direction to take. And we cannot expect to have a single force driving the change and solving the problem for all of us. He defines the process as hodgepodge and spike, a great variety of approaches. As we delay action, change becomes more inevitable, and the speed of that change as it releases, as it moves forward, uh, increases. It's going to be a wide variety of things happening in a wide variety of settings, some with international agreement or national policy support, and some because they are profitable or necessary or uh, vital to somebody's or some group's security. And that spiky landscape means that our understandings of the nature of change are out of date, right? That this is not about building one big movement of people to decide the human future and then move towards that human future. There's nobody really in charge anymore. There are many solutions that are embraced at different levels. 
from emission cuts to new technologies, from more and more opportunities to produce clean energy to better buildings and so on. There are already and there will be more and more various kinds of solutions that work in different circumstances and for different purposes. But we need to be very aware that no matter what we do now, we will have to deal anyway with a certain degree of impact from the current climate crisis. The harder part, in my mind, comes from what I think of as response, which, is, which stems from the reality that no matter what we do now, in any plausible circumstance, we're going to be dealing with a level of climate and ecological stress on our societies and a level of societal upheaval um, that's almost hard to get our heads around. Even in the best case scenarios, that's true. So we're gonna to have to talk a lot more about how do we learn to live with these kinds of changes and these kinds of pressures. And, you know, in some ways that's like, how does a, for example, a coastal city adapt to rising seas? In some ways that's how do the wealthier parts of the world, you know, respond to the create, you know, to the reality of many, many more refugees. In some ways it's about something as simple as how do you make sure that, you know, your own home is not in a floodplain or in a fire area. And these responses are actually bigger in magnitude in terms of the change in society and the amount of money we're talking about and the amount of, the amount of personal transformation that goes along with it than the actions that we need to take. The actions are a monumental struggle. The response, though, is a whole order of magnitude bigger. And that's where we really need to be looking for solutions and accelerating what we're doing. We need to talk a lot more about how we learn to live with these changes, says Stefan. And as we have already mentioned, while we are looking for solutions and accelerating what we're doing right, we can definitely find some help and draw inspiration from the insights of artists like Carolina Aragon, who works in a truly interdisciplinary domain. I think that that's where my work is heading towards. Uh, the idea of almost creating a sort of uh, set of kits, right? Like a lot of my projects, they could be done in different in different places, and I, and and they could be done by by different people. To that would be a fantastic way of expanding the impact. At the same time, because I'm an artist moving across disciplines um, and and being able to associate with social science researchers. I'm also highly aware that there's a lot that we don't know about the impact of, of these artworks. And maybe sometimes I wonder, is it all of us who are so concerned about the climate, who already know about this, that think that this project is so great, and maybe a random person doesn't understand it or get it? I don't know, right? And, I, and I'm open to knowing. And I think that's what keeps the work being interesting, you sort of being humble <laughs> and curious and very real about not let the story of a project become more than the project itself. If you can think about it, here I am, I'm doing an interview with you in Italy. You have not seen this project in person, I don't think, right? No, yeah. Exactly. And so that the impact, right? Maybe you'll be disappointed, <laughs> you know? Uh, the impact of this project, then it has a different sort of range once it's disseminated online. And that's fascinating because potentially that can have a much greater 
effect. Uh, and that's where our research sort of ended up uh, focusing it. How will the Earth look like 50, 100,000 years from now? Futurists like Alex Steffen and artists like Carolina Aragon can help us imagine our future planet. And yet, as they clearly told us today, we need to change our storytelling and ultimately our way of thinking and acting. The first and most important thing we need to be communicating is that the planetary crisis is not an issue, it's an era. This is not uh, a thing we need to track alongside our other, you know, societal and cultural concerns. This is the, you know, it is the setting for all of those concerns, right? Is the overarching change in reality that we face. And that's very hard to get across. <laughs> um, and it's also, uh, you know, there are many people who find that message uh, unappealing or, they feel like it downplays their concerns or their expertise. There's resistance to that idea, but it's true. And so that's the first thing that as journalists we need to be talking about is that whatever else we're thinking about, it has been redefined by the fact that we have, you know, put enormous perturbations into the biosphere and, you know, the, and the climate. And that those things are the bedrock of human society. So when those things change, it can't help but shake the whole house. Because the planetary crisis is, is not an issue, but an era, we should be discussing more of the things we discuss in its light, right? We should be thinking about how do we report on the economy or on uh, foreign affairs or, you know, on cultural change, et cetera, in ways that take into account this baseline overwhelming reality of change that we're living through. And right now, all too often, climate, the environment, nature are a side subject to journalistic inquiry, right? It's a, it's a subset of climate journalism. Whereas in fact, it is the central story that all journalism should be reporting right now. You have listened to Foresight Deep into the Future Planet a podcast produced by the CMCC, Euro-Mediterranean Center on Climate Change, and FACTA. The concept, interviews, and text are by Elisabetta Tola and Giulia Bonelli. The audio editing is by Lisa Lazzarato. The executive producer at CMCC is Mauro Bonocore. Foresight, Deep into the Future Planet, is available on climateforesight.eu and wherever you listen to your podcasts.